our Lenten series, we're, we're going to be looking at several people on Jesus' way to Jerusalem. Last year, we focused mostly on Holy Week, and we looked at that week, and we looked at characters just during that week. And this time, we're going to peel it back a little bit further, and we're going to go back to where we're going to start off with Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. And so all these people who met Jesus on his way to Calvary, it's not to focus on those people. We're still going to focus on Christ, but we're going to see how their interactions with Christ um, influence them. Because it's kind of weird, because you'd think every person that encounters Christ, for sure they're going to become a follower of Christ. And we're going to see that that's not necessarily the case, that, that some people he meets, even Jesus himself, you see God himself, and they still don't receive him. And so you, you hear of these people who say, you know, I need God to show himself right in front of my face, and then I'll believe. It's not true. Like, Jesus did that, and still people did not believe. And so we're going to look at all of these different brushes uh, from these people that they had with Christ, and, and some of them had these direct encounters with Jesus. Others we're going to look at only have an encounter with Jesus one time that was recorded, and we'll see what happens to them. And others have several times that they meet with him, and yet what happens to them. And so all of them have this opportunity to come to faith in Christ, but not all of them do. And so we're going to start this series in Caesarea Philippi because it marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry. And I'm so looking forward to a time when we can go do a pilgrimage to Israel through the Holy Land and we'll go to Caesarea Philippi. We'll see where this confession was made and, and you'll be able to like sense it and see the surroundings and all this sorts of stuff. But until then, we'll just talk about it. It's when Jesus begins to explain to his disciples who he is and where he's going. And it's this turning point here that that happens. Now, we have the benefit of having the entire gospel in front of us. We've, we've read it. We, we know it. And those living at the moment obviously did not have that. Like, this is occurring to them in real time. And so the perspectives that we have are very different from the perspectives the disciples had. The disciples really don't have any idea how this story is going to end. They think of these certain things that are going to happen, like toppling the Roman government oppression uh, that's what's going to happen, and Jesus is going to be king. But how, they're so far from what actually happened. And so with Christ's death, with his resurrection, we have the benefit of being able to connect all of these dots from what we know in the Old Testament to the New, and they don't have these things. They, they don't have the ability to connect all these dots from what they're experiencing and what they are currently living out in that present time, and they, they're not able to connect to Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament promises like we're able to do today. They were in the moment with Jesus Christ, and they're not able to see who Jesus was. And they didn't have any idea what was going to happen to them. Some of them left everything to follow Jesus to live with Jesus. And there was something about Jesus that drew them in to be disciples of his, and they experienced this very exciting time with Christ in what they witnessed him do. That he attracted crowds 
everywhere that he went. He attracted thousands of people in these rural parts, not even in the city centers, in these rural parts. He's attracting thousands of people to come out and to hear him and see what he does. And so you have to imagine the amount of magnetism and charisma that Christ had to pull people in like that. And it's at Caesarea Philippi that the disciples, they slowly start recognizing that, you know, maybe we've misunderstood who Jesus is. That they've misunderstood what it means to follow him. The gospel continually asks us these questions. Do you really understand who Jesus is? Do you really understand what Jesus came to do? And do you really understand what it means to be his disciple? So here we are. We're going to look at this first person of our Lenten series, Simon Peter. And in this section of scripture, we're going to take a look at Peter's confession. Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ. Here's a question that Jesus hasn't asked them before. Who do people say that I am? Like he hasn't asked that before. This is the first time he's asked them this opinion. And yet Jesus hasn't been interested in what people has thought of him in the past. He doesn't really care what they think of him. So why, why does he bring this question up now? Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Okay, that's, that's what other people say. And I think Jesus was actually just priming the pump for this second question. Because this is the all-important question for every single one of us. It's in verse 29. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And this is the question that the Gospels answer. That people have these questions about Jesus and the Gospels lay out who he is. The disciples asked in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, after Jesus calmed the storm, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And there are a lot of people that have questions about Jesus, that even the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ? And so a lot of people have these great questions. But the greatest question, the greatest issue that needs to be settled in everyone is in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. But who do you say that I am? And this is the question that all of us have to answer. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Did Peter know what his confession really meant when he said that? See, Christ means anointed one. And in the Greek, the Greek word is Christos. And it's where we get Christ in English. And the equivalent to it in Aramaic Hebrew is Messiah. They all mean the anointed one. The, the anointed one who God has promised. And so in the Old Testament, there are these three different groups of the anointed. One group that was anointed was the prophets. Another one, priests. Another one, king. Prophet, priest, king. Those were all anointed groups of people in the Old Testament. 
And God's people were familiar with all of these anointings, that God gave a promise that he will give us a prophet that is greater than Moses. He will give us a priest that is greater than Aaron. He will give us a king that is greater than David, the Messiah. And the people of God were, were looking forward to this arrival of Messiah, the anointed one, who would deliver them from their bondage. And people in Jesus' time, how they saw this was the Romans. The Romans are the ones oppressing us. They're not allowing us to live as we would like to live. They are the, one that are the ones that are keeping us in bondage. And we are looking forward to Messiah because Messiah is going to be the one who's going to deliver us from that Roman oppression. So when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that was this astonishing declaration that Peter didn't even know what he confessed in terms of prophet, priest, and king. In Matthew's gospel, it's recorded for us in Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And it was God who helped Peter come to this confession. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it reads, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so you notice it's not believing in your heart without confessing with your mouth. It's not confessing with your mouth without believing in your heart. It's confessing and believing. And so Peter had been brought to this understanding that Jesus was the anointed one, the promised one, the Savior. But he just said it. Like, did he really believe it? And it's more than just kind of hanging out with Jesus. He was brought to a point of maybe he was believing it this whole time because he was with Jesus these couple of years. And maybe it's finally where he confesses it, confessing Jesus as Savior, that he's finally saved. Now, right after Peter's confession comes the second part of this conversation. And keep in mind that the Gospel of Mark is believed to have been sourced from Peter. That Peter is a primary source for the Gospel of Mark. So it moves from Peter's confession that Jesus is Christ to right away, he's struggling with Christ. Now, there are people who struggle with Christ before they come to faith in Christ, and there are people who struggle with Christ after they come to faith in Christ, and Peter falls into this latter camp. Peter understood Jesus to be Christ, and now he needs to work out who Christ really is. And it goes back to this really huge question that each one of us needs to answer, but who do you say that I am? Because it's more than just confessing that Jesus is Christ. Because how do you define Christ? Let's look at verses 30 and 31. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Son of man. Son of man is a Jesus favorite 
in terms of calling himself that. Like that's the, his favorite title to call himself. And it's a description of himself. And no one else uses it. It's actually very unique to Jesus. And for us to understand who Christ is, we need to understand this. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Do we really understand that piece of Christ? Because this is a huge piece that Peter didn't understand. He doesn't get this. The reason Jesus is going to Jerusalem is to die on the cross. The reason Jesus dies on the cross is because it is necessary for him as anointed king to be humiliated. For him to be as anointed priest to be the sacrifice and to be sacrificed. For him as the anointed prophet to be silenced in order to bear our sins, to take our place, to have God's judgment upon us. So the cross of Christ is not Jesus setting an example for us all to follow, that, that that's what we're supposed to do. See, nobody saves another person's life by just experiencing the same thing that they do. It doesn't work that way. You don't save a drowning person by jumping in the water and then drowning with them. It doesn't work that way, right? You save a drowning person by providing something for them that they don't have and getting them out of that predicament. That's how you save them. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples that the way that they're going to be saved is by providing us with something that we don't have and rescuing us out of our predicament. That he's not just dying just to die with us. That there is a saving that is happening, a deliverance, a rescuing. He, he's going to do this by taking our place on Calvary. You see, if you and I die for our sins, which we can do, the thing is, that's it. That's the end. We, we have our judgment. We are separated from God if we die for our own sins. But the thing is, we're dead in our sins. So you don't have fellowship with God after that point. That we've received just judgment for those sins. But Jesus taking our place and in his saving power to resurrect from the grave and that he died for our sins upon himself on the cross and then is victorious over that judgment in the resurrection. This is why we celebrate Easter. He rises from the dead as a living Savior. It's him as Savior. It's this Savior Jesus we are to trust in and to believe in. And the only Christ who saves is the Christ who is humiliated as king, silenced as a prophet, and sacrificed as a priest. And this was a huge struggle for Peter. And this is a struggle for people today because it's so challenging for people to envision a Savior, a God, who can be humiliated, who can be sacrificed, who can be silenced when they are all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing. How can that be? Verse 32, And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's saying, like, you're not going to do that. I think this is a lot of us. We love telling Jesus what to do all the time. 
and we love telling him what not to do all the time. We think that we know better, and it all goes back to Genesis 3 again, right? That we know better. We do this all the time. We're so sinful. We think we know better than God. That's our predicament. And this is a continual struggle that we constantly have with Jesus. Not just simply questioning Jesus, but reprimanding him. How come you're not doing this? How come you're not doing that? Why do you do that? Why do you have these guys who are hypocrites representing you? You make no sense. Like all these sorts of things that we always reprimand Jesus for. Verse 33, but turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How many times is this us? How many times are our thoughts just godless thoughts that we think they're very good? We think that they're very good things, that on the surface, it looks like a very good thing, like talking to Jesus out of going to Jerusalem to die. That seems like a good thing. Like, why would you go there and get yourself killed? Why would you do that? That seems like a good thing. But that's because Peter doesn't completely understand who Christ is and what he came to do. Do we understand what Jesus did and what he is doing in our lives? Or are we stuck in this temporary outlook, thinking that this temporary thing that we're looking at right in front of us, whether it's our own lives or, or our community and, and what it's experiencing, and that those so-called good things are lacking. And so those are the things we're fighting for. But in actuality, we are losing focus on what is everlasting. See, the only way that Christ saves is going to the cross. And so what are we telling people about Christ today? Are we watering it down with something else? Something that we think is good in the temporary and is what you're doing even working? Or are you even evangelizing at all? When you share Christ, and you need to share the cross of Christ, you need to share about sin, because that is what leads to people confessing Christ and believing Christ when you share about him. And once there is a confession, the struggle doesn't end there. Sometimes it's the beginning of the struggle, and then comes the most challenging part of following Christ. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now those who follow Jesus have to trust Jesus going to the cross. And to go with Christ, who goes to the cross, to receive the salvation of Christ because of the cross, and Jesus gives this wonderful promise to those who follow him. Verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And if you think this cost is just too great, look at verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his own soul? There are people who still don't understand what Christ did. 
that he was sacrificed on the cross. He showed his power in the resurrection and he transforms his people by sending his Holy Spirit. And then Jesus tells us to trust him and to follow him. And I think a lot of us can probably identify with Peter. And that we make this profession of faith in Christ, but not really completely trusting Christ, thinking that maybe we know better. And maybe there are some of you here this morning that are having this sort of struggle, that you have in your mind how things should be and what things should be like and what we should be doing. And the struggle is not a bad thing to have with Christ at all. The bad thing is if you just quit struggling with Christ and said, forget it. I'm done with it. I don't want to deal with this anymore. But if you continue to struggle with Christ, that's not a bad place to be. Because you're still in relationship. You're still trying to figure things out. But if you're struggling with Christ right now, you do need to count the cost. You do need to look at verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So you go about doing what you think is good. This temporary good without an everlasting focus. But you give up your soul for it. So what good is it really? All the effort you put in, all the resources, all the whatever you're doing, energy. Are you confident that Jesus is Savior? Your Savior? Who do you say Jesus is? What are you struggling with that is not of God? And that's something we really have to be honest with. Like, is it, is it really just my struggle? Is it the struggle that my community is, is forcing upon me, but that's not really the thing? That those so-called good things that we're struggling with at the moment, that if you're not looking at them with eternal eyes, you may be forfeiting your soul. See, the only eternal thing that we can hold on to, the only thing, is Jesus Christ. It's not some issue. It's not some loved family member. It's not your money. It's not any possession. It's nothing else. It will all burn. That you need to confess Christ and believe in Christ. That's the only thing you can do for eternity. Everything else burns. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are wanting to completely focus on you. And may all of these other things that may seem like really great things, really good things, may they not be the main thing. That you are the main thing and all these other things fall in submission to that. That we look at those things in light of who you are. May that question of who do you, you say that I am continually run through us in these next several weeks as we're approaching Easter, that we would be able to trust in you, confess that, and believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move into a time of communion, and so if anyone needs those elements, just please raise your hand and we can get that to you.
This first element symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. The prophet who was silenced. The priest who was sacrificed. The king who was humiliated. Broken on our behalf to reconcile a relationship with holy God. We take this in remembrance of Christ. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. We take this in remembrance of Christ. Jesus, thank you for this simple yet profound reminder of what you did for us. As you and your disciples embark on this journey from Caesarea Philippi and and the people that we're going to meet along the way, I pray that we would focus on you and keep you in mind the entire time. In Jesus' name, amen.